Hello, and welcome to Mental Health Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Lang, and I'm here with Dr. Mark Burton. In this podcast, we will talk about all things mental health. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey guys, Liz Lang here, and this week I am very excited to welcome Dr. Arpan Wagre. And Dr. Wagre is the CEO of Providence Wellbeing Trust. So I'm going to let him briefly introduce himself, what he does, and then we'll get into our topic. Well, thank you so much for having me, Liz. So I'm Arpan Wagre, and I'm a geriatric psychiatrist by training, and I serve as a chief executive for Providence's Wellbeing Trust. Just to provide context, Providence is one of the larger health systems, uh, predominantly in the West Coast. So we're across seven states, have 52 hospitals, over 1,000 clinics, 120,000 employees, and, and served about 6 million unique patients last year. And a part Part of that, mental health has been a very, very high priority for our organization. And about five years ago, a major commitment was made to advance the mental, social, and spiritual health of the nation, which was accompanied by a $100 million endowment fund, which led to the creation of Wellbeing Trust. So this is what I have the privilege of serving as a chief executive at, and we work uh, across our system, but also nationally. Yes, which is exciting and perfect because that fits in right with mental health matters. And what we're doing is we are all about mental health and well-being. So our topic is, am I clinically depressed? And so we're going to talk about something that is very common, and that is occasional or situational depression and chronic depression. And so we're going to start by making that distinction And then we're going to go from there. So I want to start by defining occasional depression and situational depression. Are they pretty much the same thing or is there a difference there? No, that's a great question, Liz. And so let me actually qualify that by making a further distinction. So let me separate, like we're, we're human. We're going to have days when we're sad, we're down, and that's normal. There's a normal human response to certain situations that you know we can be sad and depressed. And then there's clinical depression. So let's try to make that distinction between a clinical disease, clinical depression versus um, what might be you know, a normal emotional response or being sad. And the way we would we would make this distinction is based on a few things. So first and foremost, I would say the impact on one's functionality. So are the symptoms impacting your ability to function socially or occupationally? That's an important sign to pay attention to. And if it is, then you want to make sure that we're getting more careful, thoughtful assessment. The severity of symptoms are important. The duration of symptoms. I mean, if you're feeling a little sad and and you know something happens and and you're kind of better by later in the afternoon or evening or what have you and you're you know that's different whereas in clinical depression the symptoms are more persistent and you know for major depression for example the symptoms generally persist for at least 2 weeks by definition you would need that long you know duration of symptoms and then there's a cluster of symptoms that you need to watch for so is it is it just feeling sad or is it accompanied by other stuff am i having an impact in my sleep in my appetite am i losing interest in things i previously enjoyed and that's a big one because you know if you're situationally you know sad or something is happening and you're sad you tend to still 
engage in things that previously brought you joy and you could do that. Whereas when you're clinically depressed, that becomes harder. So so those are some of the key things that, that I would say we need to pay attention to. And of course, always the first step should be speaking with your provider, primary care physician and asking, and, and they can do a much more thoughtful assessment. Right. Okay, great. Great information. And then I also think that it's important to point out that sometimes there can be what we, I guess we might call event-driven depression, where we've got just a, a lot of things happening. And it's going to trigger maybe this almost that situational depression, like, you know, perhaps the death of someone you care about, or maybe you've lost a job or something that's going to cause us to feel down and just low, maybe even as long as a couple of weeks or even up to a couple of months. But then you start to kind of bounce back and you slowly make your way out of it and everything is fine again. Now, this can also trigger chronic depression, right? Or this could trigger a maybe sort of a string of unhealthy coping mechanisms and unhealthy mental patterns that turn into this chronic long-term depression that really needs treatment. So let's get into how chronic depression is defined. Yeah. So depression, like we said, and I want to go back to situational depression, but you know, and also address the chronic depression question. I mean, mm-hmm. chronic depression, what we used to call dysthymia, now we call it persistent depressive disorder, is a clinical condition and, and typically lasts for almost two years in adults and, and uh, to make a diagnosis of this condition and one year in adults. And so it is something that by definition stays for a long time and does have some of the symptoms that we discussed previously, but might be at a milder level, but they could persist and they do affect one's function. But I also want to go back to what you said about situational because I think this is important and we don't want, I don't want the audience to leave with any wrong um, ideas about this and make sure mm-hmm. that we're clarifying this. So, so I think you're absolutely spot on that situations can trigger depression. And in mm-hmm. fact, they can also trigger clinical depression. We know that depression is caused by multiple factors and it's biological, but also could be, so there could be a genetic component, but there could also be psychological and social stressors that trigger a clinical condition. So if a situation is traumatic and triggers this emotional response that then fits the criteria of what we started describing. So if it gets to a point, even if it is triggered by a situation and you're able able to identify and draw that line that, you know, this death of a loved one or something. So there's bereavement, but then that bereavement can then progress into clinical depression or the symptoms could become severe enough that they're affecting your functioning, like I discussed before, social or occupational functioning and these other symptoms, or even have suicidal thoughts and what have you. And if this were happening, Liz, I would not dismiss this as situational depression just because we identified a situation, I would still categorize that as clinical Mm, depression and get the help, although it is a situation. So just wanted to make that clarification. And I think that, yeah, yeah. yeah, and, and, and I appreciate that. And I think that does make a lot of sense just because it's situational doesn't mean you don't need help. Correct. 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 I mean, and, and and if you find that you're coping and you're doing okay, then move through it and push through it. Maybe you've got a great social support network and you've got lots of people that you can rely on and you can count on and you're doing fine. But if at one point, like you said, you're struggling to you know, perform your job or if you're losing interest in things or if you just feel like you can't get yourself out, seek help. 
you said it beautifully. And that's that's the gist of what we want people to pay attention to. So we, you know, there's the depression, there's situations mm-hmm. that trigger it, there's normal blues, sadness, down days we have, and then there's clinical depression. And then in the clinical depression, you have major depression where you might have two weeks or so of severe depression. And then what you just asked about, which is the chronic depression, sometimes you have this persistent depressive disorder that can last for a much longer period of time and, and it still affects your functioning. And so, uh, but might be milder and might have these episodes that go deeper. And so you might have this chronic low lying, low level of depression that is always there. And then on top of that, you might have like a deeper double dip, like deeper depression, deep depressive episode that might be triggered by an event or something else. And so it's important to all also pay attention to that. Yeah. And so, you know, and I think if you're new to the world of depression, just really paying attention to how you're feeling, yeah. right? You know, and I've, I've known people who depression, it's old hat for them. They've been coping with it for years. And so they know themselves and they know, you know, when they need maybe extra intervention, when they can handle it on their own. And, but it, you know, so if you are new to the world of depression, this is something you're just starting to go with either for yourself or for a loved one. It's really important just to frequently check in. How are things going? How are you coping? Do we need to pull in some extra resources, get some extra strategies, or are we okay to just pull through this on our own? Yeah. You said that really, really well. And I just want to underscore everything you said, because I think that's something that we want the listeners to really pay attention to. I would also add that, you know, depression is unfortunately the leading cause of disability worldwide. Mm-hmm. And, and a part of that is because, you know, there's stigma. And so yeah. we might not screen for depression. We might not, you know, if life is tough and we're experiencing, you know, clinical depression, we might just dismiss that. Like, like you described, those who might be new to this world or experiencing something that doesn't make a lot of sense. But if it's, if it's, pulling you down, please pay attention to those symptoms and be an advocate for yourself and make sure that you're you're seeking the support just like you described, Liz. I think that's critical. Yeah. So depression is diagnosed either, and it has to be diagnosed either through your primary care physician or a psychiatrist. Now, a psychologist could maybe say, yeah, you've got these symptoms of depression, but really and they might, they can certainly assist you in some behaviors and just kind of that cognitive aspect of coping with depression. But really, for most people, it starts with your primary care physician. So when you go in for your yearly physical or, you know, they have this, it's a questionnaire, right? It's the, an anxiety and depression questionnaire where they ask you a bunch of things about your social life. And then they ask you kind of about your emotional and mental state and all of these things. And so what they're looking for is they're going to rate this on a scale and they're looking, if you score too high, they're going to say, okay, this person has got some signs of depression and so, or maybe anxiety. And so it's, that's why it's important to be honest with those questionnaires because that can get the process started. Now, I will say that there are times where, you know, maybe you are feeling like, oh, this feels hopeless. And I, I just, I'm really, really struggling emotionally, mentally. I, I feel like I can't get it together. And then you go into your doctor expecting them to bring this up and maybe they don't. So let's talk about that, about we know how important self-advocacy is in your healthcare. And so, you know, how do you pr- approach that with a doctor? What do you say to them to really get them to understand, no, I need help. This is deeper. 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. But before I go there, I just wanted to clarify one earlier uh, part of our of this the, this conversation. Mm-hmm. So for the diagnosis, yes, primary care is probably the best place to start. Psychiatrists can definitely make a di- uh, diagnosis. But as can psychologists. Mm-hmm. While in many states, the psychologists cannot prescribe medications, they're still by licensure can diagnose mental health mm-hmm. conditions. So, okay. so yeah, there's yeah. that. Now, moving to your your really really important question, like you know, we think of depression, anxiety, and these common mental illnesses just as any other physical condition. I mean, we have to start thinking about this that way. That's our mindset mindset change on how we approach this. And especially like we just talked about like depression and chronic depression, like persistent depressive disorder. I mean, that's like any chronic medical condition, like people manage diabetes, hypertension. You know, if you're dealing with something like that, then you need ongoing support. Mm -hmm. And so what we always want to do is we want to make sure that we identify symptoms earlier on in the course of any illness. And this is true for mental illness and physical illness. The earlier we screen and diagnose and intervene, the greater the chances are that we will do better. Not only will we have less suffering during that period, but also there's a greater chance that our symptoms can be completely resolved and we can get back to a normal level of functioning. So pairing that in mind, I mean, just as we do for like routine mammograms, uh, after you have routine colonoscopies and routine screenings that actually save lives. This is really no different. So the United States Preventive Task Force, which is the group that makes recommendations for all primary care across the United States, and, and they don't do this lightly. They pay attention to what are serious public health issues that warrant this level of screening. And depression for age group 12 and older, including, you know, new moms, postpartum depression is included in there. And most recently, they added anxiety screening Mm -hmm. as a part of this normal screening. So I would the way I approach it is when I go to my primary care physician, I want to make sure I'm always advocating for my health. So I ask questions like, Okay, so if I have concerns, I of course raise them. And if I don't have concerns, I always make sure that give at my age and my stage with all my history, are there other routine screening and preventive measures that I need to be doing at this visit with you today? just in case they get busy, distracted, and they're going. I mean, normally they have a process that allows them to go through everything. And and sometimes they'll say, yes, as a matter of fact, I want to give you this PHQ-9 depression rating scale that I, you know, I was planning to give you, but, you know, because we were talking about this other thing, I, you know, it slipped my mind or whatever it is. But I I do that. I also like the way you describe, like, these are these are self-reported questions, mm-hmm. uh, questionnaires. So it's very easy for us, the stigma to come in and you don't want your doctor to think about you in a certain way. And you might just not answer answer the questions accurately. And that only is a hurts you. Yeah. So I, I really like the way you describe that and say, try to be as transparent and as honest as you can when filling out those questionnaires, because they help guide the clinician in their understanding of what's happening, where you are, not only in terms of the diagnosis, but if you are diagnosed to have a depressive disorder and they start treating you, that's the best way they can follow up to see if they're treatment is actually working or do they need to do something different? So it, it serves both purposes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, as with anything in the realm of the medical field, there's not always a one size fits all treatment plan. And I think that's especially true when you get into the realm of depression. What's going to work for one person may not even remotely work for another person. Right. And so, you know, depression and anxiety is very, very individualized. And again, you know, that depressive screening scale that they give you is going to help them know, okay, 
it's working because, you know, you're now scoring lower on this depression scale or you're going to say or maybe it's at the same level and you say, OK, we need to do something different. OK, yeah. no, so, I think you, you captured it well. <laughs> you captured it well there. Yeah. OK, so now let's talk about mental health maintenance. And this is something that is going to apply to everybody depressed or anxious or not. And so people have heard Dr. Burton and I talk about what we call the big three of mental health. So sleep, exercise, and meditation, and if, or you can call it mindfulness. And these are so important for maintaining just a base level of good health in general, but especially if you are dealing with any sort of mental health disorder. So, you know, it's so important to focus on your mental health and your physical health as a whole, because if you are neglecting your sleep or if maybe you're neglecting your exercise, you're not going to feel as good. And if you're physically not feeling good, it's going to affect your emotional. I mean, you know, I can relate to this. Having had three kids, I get it when I'm tired and I've been tired, you know, all moms get it. The, the, the newborn phase is rough. When I'm tired, I'm grumpy. I don't feel good. I could have like maybe perfect antibody levels. Everything in my body could be saying, no, you're just fine. But if I'm tired, I don't feel good. So it's so important to really focus on your mental health and your physical health kind of as one unit. So adequate sleep. Let's hear it. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So first of all, I'm super excited you brought this up because I, you know, that connection between the mind and body, mental health and physical health, there cannot be separated. That's critical. I also want to, before we even get into this, like, just think about this. I want to take a step back and say, when you hear physical health, mm -hmm. what do you think, right? Immediately people start thinking about physical health. I say physical health, you start thinking exercise, diet, you know, healthy, blood you know, pressure. Diet, whatever, blood pressure, but, yeah. but healthy, healthy diet, healthy exercise. And, you know, you think about physical health, you're thinking about that, right? When I say mental health, we immediately go to depression, anxiety. And I want to start by making that distinction right at that highest level. Physical health, if you're thinking of exercise, healthy diet and all that, mental health is not equal to mental illness. Mm -hmm. Mental illness is different. And we we discussed some of that on the earlier part of our conversation. But when we talk about mental health, think of it just as you think of physical health. And that's why I really like the way you framed it. And I like your three big ones. And, and I, you know, would agree with all of them. I might add, you know, a few things that may make sense for some people, uh, mm -hmm. like their, some, you know, their, their practices that I use, a practice of gratitude in mm -hmm. addition to that. And mm -hmm. so there's some of that. But so, so coming back to your question now, so, so let's make sure when we talk about this, like words matter and yeah. the words we use to describe people or illnesses or situations matter a lot. Mm -hmm. So like, we don't want to address somebody as, oh, that depressed 30 year old or schizophrenic 22 year old, or it's a person experiencing depression, your illness does not define you. And so similarly, when we talk about mental health, let's think about mental health as mental health and well-being, not mental illness. Mm -hmm. Okay, now having having said that, sleep, so critical, right? Mm -hmm. So I like the way you, you gave your own example. And that is so true. I mean, we typically require, and it varies from individual to individual, but about seven to nine, nine hours of sleep, you need mm -hmm. good quality sleep. So, you know, the deep sleep. So there, there are two phases of sleep that we all have when we, we go to bed and, and there's a deep sleep, which is, you know, the non-rapid eye movement sleep. And we require significant 
part of uh, our sleep to be that type of a sleep because that's restorative. You wake up and you're refreshed. You mm-hmm. feel you know better and you feel more awake. Now, if you're waking up, you sleep those seven, eight hours and you're waking up tired and fatigued, you want to make sure you're understanding what's happening over there is the type of sleep. Is alcohol involved? And are you going to sleep with that? And you're not getting the quality sleep. The other basic things with sleep are routine and structure. Like that's mm-hmm. critical. Going to bed at a certain time, waking up, that helps a lot. The other thing is there's basic techniques called sleep hygiene methods. Yep. And I would make sure that the audience is you know, paying attention to those kinds of things. And, and they can vary from one person to another, but there's some basic concepts that I think are relevant to all of us. So practicing good sleep hygiene, getting those adequate number of hours of sleep that helps you wake up refreshed and restored and rejuvenated. And if you're feeling tired or fatigued, pay attention to your body, just like you just mm-hmm. said, listen mm-hmm. to yourself. And and so I, I don't know if I answered your question though, but sleep is a critically important one. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And it leads really well into exercise and kind of, so a few weeks ago, Dr. Burton and I did an episode on sleep disorders where we talked about kind of what to do if you are waking up, not feeling rested. And that stemmed from my own personal experience of really focusing, paying attention to my own depression and, you know, my own sleep hygiene and still waking up every day, feeling just tired and exhausted. And so my diagnosis is idiopathic hypersomnia, which just means my brain just, I want to sleep and I have a genuine want for more sleep. Now, my treatment plan involves exercise. And so exercise is this amazing drug that I wish more people would focus on and pay attention to. Because, you know, yesterday and today, even I woke up feeling so tired, all I wanted to do was go back to bed, even though I got seven, seven and a half hours of sleep. And according to my watch, I got good quality sleep. I had a high sleep score. I was still just felt tired and a lot of it. And it's busy, busy time for me with young kids, Halloween, you know, all these activities going on, man, I just felt exhausted. But both mornings I got up, I got in a good bike ride, got my heart rate up. I got the endorphins going. And all of a sudden I feel, I felt wide awake and, and it's amazing. And, you know, my treatment plan for idiopathic hypersomnia does involve medication, but it's an as need basis. And thankfully my schedule is flexible enough. Most days I don't need it because I can exercise. Now I do want to say that when you first start exercising, most people don't enjoy it because it's not fun. It it doesn't feel good. Exercise is it's hard when you first start, but you have to just find something you can at least tolerate and then stick with it and eventually it becomes addictive and it becomes addicting and you want more. You want you want to do it every day because it does feel good to have, you know, really gotten your heart rate up and those endorphins going. And so, you know, exercise one thing that I feel like at least our culture really neglects and don't do that exercise. I can't stress enough. It's this amazing drug that will do wonders for your body. That's good for you. Couldn't agree more with everything. I, you know, exercise is is a part of my life. Like I can't imagine having a routine without that. I wake up at 4.30 in the morning. I'm not a biker, but Mm -hmm. I do orange theory and I do it every single day. And I'm 
very, very disciplined with that. And I feel like that's when the endorphins are released. I actually feel good and it helps your entire day. And so it's not that the benefits just like, you know, unlike many other drugs that we're talking about, Uh so they, they, you know, the benefits go away or die down here, the endorphins are released, and you actually have lasting benefits through the course of the day. And so I think there's so much to be said. And they're actually so not only just our respective experiences, but but coming to the science. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are well designed studies that demonstrate the efficacy of exercise in treating conditions like clinical depression. So of course, we know the benefits on the heart and and all the other things with blood pressure and and, and all that. But we also have ample evidence to say that it can actually be a very effective treatment strategy for depression. So that routine exercise. Now, also the flip side of that is you've probably read those articles and there's a lot of popular media stuff that had come out on some of this, like sitting is the new smoking. And that was very catchy at one point in time, like you're sitting for, you know, three hours or four hours or whatever continuously. And, you know, that's equal equivalent, or it has the same adverse health impact as smoking, whatever number of cigarettes a day or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think all that also comes back to like that moving our body. I mean, our bodies are designed, if you think back and see, you know, the evolution of the human species, I mean, Mm -hmm. we're designed to move and to do certain things, not to just stay put in one spot. So I think building that routine and exercise and that structure is a critical part for every one of us. Now, if you're in a lot of pain, you have joint pain, you have, say, other situations where, or other reasons, physical reasons why it might not be possible for you to, you know, engage in some rigorous exercise pattern, try to find something that works for you and suits you. I've had a lot of patients who have told me that, you know, uh, it was really hard. They used to enjoy running, had this accident and just couldn't do it anymore. And then that, you know, lead led to this very all or none way of thinking. It's very black and white. Like either I exercise, so exercise means running. And if I can't do that, then I can't do anything else. But then when they found something else that works for them, like water aerobics or swimming or something else, Mm -hmm. then they kind of got back into that routine. So just trying to also call that out that it's not like, you know, just a one size fits all or even one size fits most. It's, you know, whatever works for you. Even if it's something as simple as yoga, walking, stretching, yep, you know, any sort of exercise, anything that's going to get your endorphins up, you know, and, and it's going to help bring out the, the feel goods. It's crucial. Yeah, I would do even even if you don't have time and to go to a gym or exercise mm-hmm. and you're doing this, try to think about different things you do. Say you you park your car to work. You know, can you find a parking spot that's farthest away from your office space mm-hmm. that you can park and walk to, right? If you're working from home and you know you don't get a lot of steps in or so. When you're taking your meetings, can you get one of those, you know, you have a lot of those kind of peddler devices or cycle, Mm -hmm. like, you you know, I've seen so many of my colleagues and coworkers who are taking meetings on a treadmill. They're going at a slow pace. They're doing this. I have so many offices that I've seen where uh, they've taken out the chairs completely. They have elevated desks and people stand and they're walking. So just try to think about what you can do to incorporate some level of exercise in your day, even if you don't make that morning routine or whatever. Yeah. Right. Okay. So meditation or mindfulness. Now this one is very, very broad, right? And so, you know, meditation and uh, Dr. Burton, I've done an entire episode on meditation and most people think that meditation, you know, I don't know, they think that it has to be some big long hour thing where, you know, you're sitting here and you're in this deep meditative thought and it, that, that doesn't have to be it at all. 
It could just be very simple or it could simply be mindful. So one of the things that I notice personally that I catch myself doing is if I'm feeling anxious or tense, my entire body, I'll tense up my body. Maybe it's, and, and it's usually in my shoulders. You know, I tense up my shoulders. I tense up my jaw muscles. And so mindfulness, it counts as just mindfulness of pay attention, take a deep breath and relax. Oh, you know, I'm tensing up those muscles. Okay. Why am I feeling tense? What's going on right now? And then just physically relax. Because, you know, another thing that Dr. Burton and I have talked about is you cannot avoid stress more, any more than you can avoid life. <laughs> so it, to, to live is to have to deal with stress. And so my meditation or mindfulness is really about finding a way to cope effectively with the stress. So you need to have some tools in your belt to be able to recognize, okay, I'm feeling stressed. Things are a little tough right now. What can I do to help relax myself and calm down, even if it's just for a few minutes? So whatever that looks like for you, play around with it, do lots of different things and just find something that helps bring your heart rate down, helps you feel peaceful and helps you feel calm. I think you said it all. I don't know if there's anything intelligent that I need to add after that. I think breathing exercises are are easier things that anyone can take on. I really like the way you describe that. You know, it is true. People start thinking about meditation as this big ordeal that has to be done at like you know, for such a long time. And, and that's not the case. I mean, mm-hmm. whatever you're able to do and breathing, you know, just breathing from your diaphragm, diaphragmatic breathing and practicing that yeah. you can actually start. So diaphragmatic breathing and progressive muscle relaxation. Any one of us can do that sitting anywhere we're at. And you just described the progressive muscle relaxation. Like, okay, I'm feeling tense in my jaws, I'm in shoulders. And now you're consciously aware of that. And you're progressively relaxing different muscle groups and you're done. I mean, that's all. It's as simple as that. And then if you accompany that with breathing exercises where you actually practice diaphragmatic breathing and you release your breath in a certain way, you can notice how calm you become and your heart rate in a very short period of time. So I think practicing the right techniques with some of these things and being there in the moment, like not only, you know, for sitting outside and doing meditation or mindfulness, like, but whatever you're doing in life through your course of your day, be present in that moment. You know, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I drive my older daughter to school sometimes. And, and I, you know, sometimes, you know, you start off and there's like all this meetings there. I have all this work. I started off by looking at an email. I need to send this stuff out. And so my mind is racing with all those things. And I'm actually drafting the notes in my mind. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. about this while I'm driving her. And and she's telling me a story about something. And one day she was doing, we were doing this and, and she suddenly, she realized, she noticed that I wasn't mindful. I wasn't there. I was thinking of something. And she stopped me and said, dad, what did I just say? (laughs) And oh my God, I was caught off guard. (laughs) And Uh it changed my approach, you know, till this day. And I, I recognize that, you know, we all have a lot of things going on. And, you know, the reality is that, look, we can either completely get overwhelmed with everything, or we can just take life in small steps in that moment. So now when we drive, that's our precious time together that I'm listening and I'm there. That Those moments, I'm there. I'm fully present there. And yeah. I get to work and I'm fully present there. And then those are the things that we all need to start incorporating. Again, that mindfulness. And, you know, meditation can be as simple as, you know, I'm going to take just five minutes and I'm just going to focus on my breathing. That's meditation. You're meditating. And that's exactly. going to be good for you. It's about bringing down that heart rate, which is going to help lower your blood pressure. It's going to help alleviate stress, which is good for 
obviously physical health and mental health. Again, it's that oneness, that sameness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Dr. Wagrate, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you have any questions for us, we are happy to do a follow-up episode. I am sure that he will join us again in the future. And in the meantime, we will see everybody next week. Thank you. Have a question for Dr. Burton? How about a topic you'd like us to cover? Send us an email at mentalhealthpod21 at gmail.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Liz Lang. Music is by Audio Lounge.